Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for our next episode of the Pastor Talk podcast. We are overjoyed to have you with us again for another conversation. Uh, not going to lie, we have gone back and forth a little bit on who we would come to next. And so our character for today is going to be Jonah. Uh, Jonah is a really interesting character. I'm excited to have this uh, conversation and to be able to dig into his story a little bit. But um, it's also a little bit of a diversion uh, in the sense that um, we've now really moved beyond some of those key linchpins in Israel's story as it's told historically as the way that the kingdom grows and the way that that socio-political leadership and all of that is framed in, in the larger arc. That's not to say that Jonah doesn't fit in a time, but it's to say um, that we're now looking at someone who begins to occupy what we might call a more prophetic role in the people of Israel and their own story. So I'm looking forward to that slight shift, and we're going to see in it some things that are highly relatable. Yeah, thanks for joining us, everybody. I, Michael, I think I would say that Jonah is an important book, but Jonah's not an important character. And what I mean by that is Jonah's not connected to the monarchy of Israel. Jonah's not connected to other stories. We're really one possible reference outside of this book and probably not. So this this book is almost entirely self-contained. It's just four chapters. And yet he is an important character because he's fascinating. His mm -hmm. his story is so interesting and in many ways so unlike everything else in the scripture. Jonah is a unique character, particularly in regard to to the group of men we call prophets in the Bible. Yeah, I think, Clint, what is interesting about Jonah is that if you read the historical commentators, those Christians who take the Old Testament very seriously and, and do a lot of scholarly study, some of them are going to tell you that Jonah didn't historically exist, that you wouldn't find a person in time. Other commentators will say that you will, but I think what makes Jonah so powerful as a book is it really honestly doesn't matter to you sitting down to read this book today whether Jonah was or wasn't a physical prophet that walked the earth. You can find humanity deeply embedded in here. Anyone can find a way that they are related to or that they can empathize with Jonah and his thinking and his struggle and his journey because he's dealing with deep issues of what it means to be human, of reconciling with your enemy, of trusting God, even when God calls you to do something uh, that you would rather not do, uh, watching God be gracious to others and grieving. All of this is something that we can relate to and something that we find explored in this book. Yeah, and of course, Michael, biblical scholars have to find things to argue about and to question. And th there is some um, there's some literary considerations. There's some thematic considerations. The, the question that has hung over Jonah re really for a long time, this isn't a modern question, was, was Jonah read as history by the people who first read it? Or was it a, a lesson? Was it a sermon? Was it a, a fable of some kind? And for the modern reader, I, there's probably a theological significance in that, whether you lean is a more conservative interpreter of the Bible or whether you don't. But from a functional standpoint, in terms of what we learn from the book, I would say that 
it doesn't really matter. If, if you want to dig into those questions, you certainly can. They're interesting. They teach you a lot about the, the book and the way it's written and the language. But in terms of what it says to us, I, I don't think the, the nice thing about Joan is you don't have to engage it at that level to listen to it and be convicted by it. And I think that's really a strength of the book. Absolutely. Well, and maybe the best way to dig into some of these themes is to just start right here with the book. It opens with Jonah. And uh, as you might know from even your Sunday school days, uh, Jonah gets uh, met by God and God says, I want you to go to uh, the uh, the city where you are going to go proclaim God's uh, judgment, coming judgment, and these being Jonah's enemies, he refuses to do so. Yeah, so let's talk a little background. Jonah is set in the time of the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are the growing world power. They will end up conquering Israel, and they there is deep, deep animosity, hatred really, between the Israelites and the Assyrians. And probably when this is written, Michael, that that is at its height. And so Assyria has the capital city, Nineveh, and the word of the Lord, and that's important, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go there. I want you to go preach against Nineveh. And there's this little qualifier in there, that great city. And Jonah has to be thinking, what are you, why are you calling it a great city? That No, it's not a great city at all. That's where the worst people in the world live, and I'm not going there. And so what's fascinating about this introduction is that we're not two or three verses in, and God does what God often does. He pinpoints the thing Jonah is least willing to give and asks him for that and asks of him the very thing that will be hardest for Jonah to do. And, and therein, I think, is the, is the great um, challenge and wisdom of the beginning of this story is it already invites us to begin thinking about what would be the thing I would want God to ask of me the least. It is only three verses, and the scripture is able to move us from the setup of who this person is, of what God wants, and, and his unwillingness to do it. The economy of scripture is remarkable in its ability to immediately pinpoint the point that the story is making. And I think that fundamentally, the scripture wastes no time in making the case that God wants a clear and relatively simple action from Jonah, an action which Jonah is uh, constitutionally unwilling, if not unable, to do. And that is the, the setup to the story. And um, what I think makes Jonah interesting is it's a theme that's going to run throughout the story and have some really interesting twists and turns. Yeah, and so just so you know, Jonah here goes the exact opposite direction. Tarshish is on the map of the ancient world, essentially the farthest you can get from Nineveh. So he goes entirely the other direction. And there's some beautiful um, language here. God says to Jonah, 
in our verse two, it says go at once. It, it literally says get up or arise and go to Nineveh. And then later it says, but Jonah went down to Joppa to find a ship going to Tarshish. So even the even the language is is conflicted. God says go up and Jonah goes down instead. And and there's some of that through this book. But someone spent a lot of time thinking over how they were going to paint this picture. So you know the story from here. He gets on the ship. The Lord is very active in this story. Nearly everything that happens is it comes about because God does it. And the Lord sends a storm. The the sailors have not seen anything like this. They're terrified. They're trying to fight against this. And Michael, they go look for Jonah and they find him sleeping. Right, which is interesting because while these sailors are up in arms, they're terrified, they're screaming, they're praying to their gods, the, the scripture actually tells us, Jonah is doing none of those things. He's not calling to his God. He's sleeping. He's not up on the deck. Jonah is just visibly, physically separate from the struggle of that moment. And it's fascinating that these supposed heathen men, they're, they're worshiping other gods, are the one who's interceding and imploring Jonah to pray to the one true God, ironically. And so, it's, it's another layer in which Jonah is refusing to submit to the will of God. Yeah, and you could ask yourself, how could you possibly sleep through this? Well, I don't. I think the answer is Jonah doesn't care what happens. Yeah, Jonah is uh, at peace. May not be the right phrase, but Jonah is disconnected from God, and therefore he has no interest. If if this is his death, it it doesn't. He's numb. He this is what happens when we run from God. We we sacrifice a, a sense of uh, um, being alive, a sense of that kind of um, awareness and connection to the world around us. And, and he's isolated, he's by himself, and he's asleep. And that's a physical metaphor in this story for a spiritual condition. Yeah. And in fact, the text makes that explicit. The sailors are begging him, what shall we do to you that the sea will be quiet for us? And then he says right here in verse 12, of chapter one, pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. It, there is zero, well, wait, let's think this through. Hold on, I need to pray and make sure. The, the text just makes it abundantly clear. This is not between what Jonah um, is discerning what the right action should be this is Jonah knowing it and refusing to do it. Yeah, and the the men here are shown as having some integrity, unwilling to do that. They fight against the storm the best they can, and when they find out they just absolutely aren't going to be able to save the ship, then they pray, and, and this is significant, Michael, they pray to the Lord, and when you see Lord in the Old Testament in all capital letters, m many of you may already know this, that's the literal name of God, Yahweh, the sacred name of the Israelites for God. And so they pray not to the little g gods that they called on earlier, but now they turn to the God of Jonah, the one true God, and they pray, 
don't let us perish on account of this man's life and don't make us guilty for what we do. And so then it says they picked him up, they threw him into the sea, and instantly the sea ceased from raging. And then it says the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So interestingly enough, in in a very tangential way, we have a conversion story here. As the men have seen the power of God, they have become adherents, or they have at least become those who would turn to God and and offer thanks and, and praise. It is the first instance of Jonah being a reluctant evangelist, or maybe a refusing evangelist, that Jonah is dead set on not doing the thing that God calls, and yet somehow people have real encounters with the living God, even in spite of how resistant Jonah is to following God's will. Yeah. And so the next part of the story is the part that everybody knows, the great right. fish, the whale, What it, you can argue about the words if you want, great fish, it says in Hebrew, and it swallows Jonah and three days, three nights, which is possibly a, a literal reference, but three days and three nights is a period of hardship. It's a period of reflection. The number three has some significance in the Old Testament, New Testament as well. And in in that situation, in that great fish, Jonah prays. And, it, and that prayer takes up all of chapter two. It is beautifully written. It is poetic. It is some of the most um, vibrant and creative and uh, nuanced Hebrew that you can find in the prophets. And that's saying a lot as the prophets are filled with some very incredible verses. But this is astoundingly well-written, according to biblical scholars, and has a lot of depth in it. Yeah, and if you read this, you're going to be moved by its beauty, I think. And I wonder if, when you read it, you might also be moved to Jonah's side. If you might have a moment about three-quarters of the way through when you say, okay, yeah, Jonah ran the other way, God saves him from death through this miraculous means, I think that Jonah's coming on the right side now. It, it sounds like, it feels like Jonah's having his own conversion moment here right in the text. And I think it's intended to open that feeling to us. Yeah, it sounds like a guy who gets it. It sounds like a guy who's seen the error of his ways, and now he's committing himself to a better path. And he, he ends that prayer with deliverance belongs to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out on dry land. And the word spewed here is, um, in Hebrew, is, is vomited. He threw him up. He, he spit him out onto the shore. And then we have a restatement of how we started this book. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, get up, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim the message that I will tell you. And so this time, Jonah goes, and he ends up in Nineveh as he was originally supposed to. And we're told that Nineveh is an exceedingly large city, a three-day walk across. And then we're told Jonah begins to go into the city and went a day's walk, and he cried out 40 days more, 
and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And if I remember right, Michael, it's been a while since I did the work on this. I think that's four, I think that may be five words in Hebrew. So it, it's either a four or five word sermon, not even halfway through the city. He doesn't even make it to the center of town. He gets a third of the way through and he mumbles this very anemic kind of sermon and I think feels like he's done his job. Yeah, this is one of the great uh, abilities of the scriptural writers is to tell us a lot about what a person is thinking and feeling and intending without ever saying that explicitly. The, the inclusion of these details, Clint, might be easy to miss if you're just reading, right? The idea of the fact that the city's three days walk across, he, he only goes one day, but that's the scriptural writer's way of letting you into what's intended. The fact that the scripture is just literally a few words, or the proclamation is just a few words. This is this, the scripture's way of telling us, this is a guy who is doing the least that he possibly has to in response to the word of the Lord that came to him. He's doing it. I mean, he got spewed out of the fish. He's alive, but he's not happy about it. Yeah, this is those of you who have children and you ask your kids to put their shoes away or whatever, and it takes them 10 minutes of sighing and dragging them across the floor. And it's like, good night. Would you just do it, right? Just... And that's Jonah here. He just I, I think the implication is he puts zero effort into this, zero passion, zero care, zero concern. And yet, as sermons sometimes do, for reasons beyond the preacher, they land. And this one lands. The people of Nineveh believe God, they proclaim a fast, and everyone great and small, put on sackcloth. And when the news reached the king, there's this uh, almost comical scene that happens. Mm -hmm. the, the king took off his robe. He covers himself in sackcloth. He sits in the ashes, all signs of repentance. And then he makes this proclamation. No human being or animal or herd or flock will taste anything. They won't feed or drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they will cry mightily to God. And again, the word God here is not Yahweh, but it is a, a specific word for Israel's God in this context. Now, you'd read past that and maybe miss the joke, but the idea that you would dress up your animals in the cloth of repentance, that you would get sackcloth on all of your, your herds, is, I think, the Bible's view of as hilarious. Yeah, and Jonah, to his credit, has God pegged. I mean, that's actually the point, because after all of this happens— God sees this, and the text literally says God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring about them upon them, and he didn't do it. Jonah literally called up from the beginning, and to Jonah's credit, he actually says it because he prays, and he says to God, that's why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. I can't tell you the number of sermons, Clint, in my own short lifetime, I've heard preached on this text, this, this verse, because it's beautiful, right? That God is slow to anger, God is gracious and merciful, steadfast love. This is beautiful. 
And Jonah finishes this with, and now Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And, and here it is, Jonah, he, he tries to run away. God doesn't let him. He does the least that he can possibly do. It affects change in the city. God is moved by that change. And Jonah says, game up. I knew this was going to happen. I'm out. Yeah, so we open chapter four with that great verse. It was displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. And the fourth chapter, anger plays a significant role. And a lot of people, I think, may know the verse that you're referring to, Michael. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. I think, though, that what many people who have heard those words don't realize is it's a complaint. Yeah, exactly. Jonah is saying, I, I knew it. I knew you would find a way to save these people. I knew if I came here, you would find a way to let all these people off the hook. I, I knew it. I knew you're gracious. I knew you abound in steadfast love. I know that you relent from punishment. And dang it, I'm I'm not happy about it. Yep. I'm, I'm angry. Now, I just want to be done. I'd rather die then live. And then the Lord responds, is it right for you to be angry? And fascinating, Jonah doesn't answer. He stomps off. He's, he's the pouting child. He went out of the city and he sat down east of the city and made a booth, a dwelling for himself and sat in the shade waiting to see what would become of the city. So he, the, the implication, I think, Michael, is that he's sitting there hoping it's a small hope. God will change his mind again and go back to the original plan and that Jonah will have a front row seat to watch this city get wiped out. No, absolutely. I, he's had this conversation with God. He's expressed displeasure. And he's still able, as humans seem so constitutionally able to do, he still holds on to some hope that there might be destruction for the bad guys. I hope that maybe they go back on it. Maybe their um, sackcloth and ashes will end too soon. Maybe God will change his mind. I want to at least be there to see if it happens. And it's in that spirit that God, out of that same grace and abounding love, makes this plant to grow above him. It's hot sitting out on the edge here and as he's watching for this city's destruction. And um, Jonah's shaded by it. And it, it's great. And he likes that until the plant dies. And Jonah is moved with just absolute um, disgust and anger about the death of this plant. Yes, yeah, so he was very happy about the plant. And then he was made faint and he was bitter. And he said, it is better for me to die than live. And here we have kind of the final conclusion. J Jonah has, I, I think, one of the most fascinating endings mm -hmm. in the scripture. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah said, yes, angry enough to die. So Jonah, even in even in the face of God, is holding on to his anger. And the Lord said, look, you're concerned about the bush. You didn't do anything to earn the bush. You didn't have anything to do with it. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. 
And then he says, you care about the bush. Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? In other words, okay, Jonah, you're angry that the bush died and you don't care what happens to 120,000 human beings. And fascinating, that's where it ends. We never mm-hmm. get to hear Jonah's response, which is an incredible ending. It's a remarkable ending, and it's remarkable for the story itself, the fact that it leaves open what Jonah's response is going to be, and it allows us to insert ourselves to ask the same question, you know, how might we respond if we were honest enough to put ourselves in the same circumstance? But I think, Clint, this also points us to the nation of Israel as a whole. And it is remarkable, and I, I think we need to just pause for a moment and recognize that it's not as if Jonah's perspective towards Assyria was unique. In other words, any Israelite would have at least been able to relate if they would not have agreed completely with what Jonah wished upon their enemies. That's, that's native to the human condition, that we wish ill on those who we consider to be our enemy. And yet, to, to the people of Israel's credit, and I think one of the reasons why Jonah is a prophet is because he speaks against that in an incredibly compelling way. The Ninevites are cast in this story as people waiting to hear God's word proclaimed to them, and they are ready and willing to respond to it when they hear it. And that is a It's a conception of your world and a conception of God's work in that world, which is large and full of humility. And I think it's beautiful. Yeah, I would, I think I would say, Michael, that it's really a tribute to this book, to the beauty of this book, that it stays in the scripture. Yeah. Because Jonah is essentially disobedient. At least he's very reluctantly obedient. Secondly, there's a word of grace here for the enemy. And if you read so much of the Old Testament, right. the division between Israel and the enemy is concrete and unassailable. And here, it, it's somewhat fluid. The, the There's not a lot in the Old Testament of God being gracious to those who stand against God's chosen people. And and here we see that very clearly. And I I think it's remarkable that this book has uh, found its place in the canon and remained there. And what the lesson is that we take from it, I, I really think, as you said very well, the ending asks us, essentially invites us to sit there on the hillside imagining what we do. What, what is our response to the other? What is our response to the knowledge that God loves and cares about those that we struggle to love and often don't care about? And how often we get concerned over the conveniences and ups and downs of our own small life simultaneously unconcerned about the bigger picture of the world around us. It's fascinating, fascinating book and an incredible way to bring 
that challenge to us at the end of it. Yeah, I think there's a few other themes interwoven, but we shouldn't rush beyond, like you're saying, Clint, just the sheer factual reality that here we have someone who is confronted by a God whose grace is beyond their ability to imagine. And, and not just that, but who is disgusted by God's grace for another. Even so far as to think God is wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to stand up to God and, and to say that in, in direct conversation, I think this is really honestly a timely story in this moment, in a world which is beset by polarization, that people standing on opposite sides with very differing perspectives and who are oftentimes uh, very tempted to make an enemy of the other. And we can make enemies as humans. I mean, this is a scriptural uh, tenet. We can make enemies of anything. And so fundamentally, this is a, a hard challenge to all of us who might be quick to wherever we are engaging with those enemies on our televisions or phones or screens or, or whatever. Fundamentally, are we willing to wish God's grace and love upon another, or do we wish them destruction? And that is an unbelievably challenging, but yet helpful word. Yeah, it's such a humbling reminder to hear again that God loves the people that we don't and wants for them the best as he wants for us. And we don't, you know, we sort of acknowledge that in general, but when it comes to the specifics of those people who have wounded us or offended mm -hmm. us most deeply, that is difficult ground to walk. And I, I think, again, the wisdom of a book like this is that it gives a voice to that that lives in so many of our hearts or lives in our hearts at so many different moments. And to call that out the way this book does in a very uh, large and, and strangely detailed story about fish that swallow people and weak sermons and storms that come and bushes and worms, um, it, it has a remarkable way of kind of stringing us along and then saying, okay, now who is God sending you to and what will you do with it? I think a theme that you see within the first few verses of this book is the, the gap between knowing what we're called to do and who we're called to be and our desire to respond to it. And that's a theme that we've seen through a number of these people of faith, right? Is that God calls them to an act. A Abram gets called by God, go to this land that I'm going to send you, a land that you've never seen. And Abram responds in faith. And you see that over and over in these characters of faith, how God calls and how most of the time that call is unbelievably clear. And I, I will say this for myself personally, there have been many moments in my life where I have yearned for God's call. And looking back on those moments, if I'm going to be honest, God's call was pretty clear in all of them. 
I was just fighting because I wanted to find the gray because I didn't particularly want to do it. Now, I don't think that's always true, and I don't want to put that on anyone else, but I, I do think the book of Jonah makes it pretty clear that the human temptation is to avoid the clear will of God for what we would rather do. Sure, and I suspect both of us have counseled people, Michael, and I, I think I certainly have said this in my own life. Maybe you have too. You hear somebody who says, hey, I just wish God would tell me what to do. If if God would just let me know what he wants, I will do it. And I always think to myself, Jonah, <laughs> and, be, and be very careful because scripturally speaking, God will always be most interested in what you least want to give. Mm. God will always be most directive in the direction you least want to go. And I think there is uh, th the reason for that, I, th I think the lesson in that is God never seeks partial obedience. God never seeks partial conversion. God is interested in the whole, the whole of the city of Nineveh, the whole of Jonah's obedience. God offers Jonah opportunity after opportunity to see his grace. And even in the moment where he saves him in the fish, and Jonah has this heartfelt moment of prayer, God again and again and again says, Jonah, I want you to come in and learn grace and love and compassion, and Jonah won't do it. Jonah is the best, worst prophet <laughs> in the history of the faith. Everybody this guy interacts with in the entire book turns to God, yep. and Jonah turns away from him. It, it's a fascinating story, Michael. It's just it's incredibly well, well done. You know, Clint, a thing about Jonah that always makes me chuckle and maybe sometimes frustrates me is how popular of a story this is in Sunday school because the 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 great fish the 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 whale however you want to read that is a great coloring page right i mean that's just awesome you give that to kids and they get to color the sea and the fish and the big fish and there's a guy in the water but if if that's where you get your focus in this story. You're missing the point. You're, you're being distracted by the fantastical and you're missing the absolute core human relatable aspect to this story. And by the way, this is applicable to kids as well. <laughs> the thing that you know you should do that you're unwilling to do and that it takes practicing humility. It takes practicing a kind of uh, self-giving for you to be able to live into what's God's will for all humanity. And I think it's striking. The two natural actors or characters, if you let me say that in this story, both come in God's gracious response to Jonah, right? The first is he's thrown into the sea and God raises up this fish that saves Jonah's life. The second time, Jonah's up on the mountain and is hot and God causes this plant to grow above him. Both of them natural things. And in both cases, they're symbols of God's gracious and abounding love for the guy who's trying to keep that very same grace and abounding love to reach out to other people. God is gracious to everyone in this story, whether you're a pagan sailor, you're the king of a reprehensible people group, 
or your prophet who refuses to follow the leading of the God, God is abounding in love and grace to everyone in the story. And that is, if you're a human, both good news and maddening. Yeah, there's a sense in which this story is far darker than we let it be in the church, Michael. And what I, what I mean by that is, from the beginning of the story, Jonah knows who God is. Jonah's decisions are not made in ignorance. They're made in... Um, they're made in an, an unwillingness to let God be God. In other words, Jonah knows that God is loving. This isn't a misunderstanding. Right. Jonah sees what God may do and wants no part of it. And then from the ship, Jonah is willing to die. Jonah would rather lose his own life then participate in God's possible mercy to his enemies. And then he makes this half-hearted attempt, and then at the end of the book, he sits there camped over the city, willfully hoping against hope that he will get to see the destruction of a 100-plus thousand people and, and see God punish them because Jonah hates them. And that sort of, that sort of darkness in him is, I think, frightening, it, especially when we understand that we all resonate with it in some place in our life at, at one moment or another. And, you know, Jonah's not a, he, he's not caught up in this story. He's not, he doesn't misunderstand. He's not like some of the other characters of the scripture. He, he's a hate-filled man right. who, who wants to put a roadblock up to the possibility that God may intervene on behalf of those he hates. Yeah, Clint, Jonah is someone who is relatable to the person who's been a Christian for a really long time. Right? I mean, fundamentally, on its surface, the, the story of Jonah is good news for those who don't know God, for those who are waiting to hear the gospel proclaimed, because God is gracious and God is going to move the, the good news to them by whatever means God needs to do it. But this story is incredibly challenging to the Christian who may be able to resonate with the story of someone who knows what God wants done, knows the character of God, and says, but they don't deserve it. In other words, the person who would much prefer to be the judge than the witness. And anyone who's lived the faith for some time knows that that's a challenging line to walk, that, that we can sometimes find ourselves heart and soul in a position where we don't see any other road open to us but judgment of the other because it appears clear to us and God's grace appears unfair. And, you know, it really reminds me of Jesus's parable of the vineyard and the 
workers who come in and some come in early, some come in late, but they all get paid the same wage. And Jesus uh, says that the, those who worked longer complained and asked, you know, how is it fair that you pay us the same as them? And Jesus says, well, didn't, isn't that what we agreed to? Well, yeah. Then isn't it my prerogative to give to them however much I want? That, that story, I think, is in many ways a cousin to this story, that we would much prefer for God to follow our plan than for us to respond to God's call to us. And I think that that has to start with us confessing that that's a temptation uh, that comes within all of us. Yeah, and I think there's an, another undercurrent to that, Michael, which is that Jonah doesn't connect receiving grace with giving it. And the, the danger in being the ones who are thankful when God acts on our behalf, but resentful when God acts on the behalf of others. So we're happy to see good things happen to us because we somehow convince ourselves that we deserve it. But when it happens to those that we consider undeserving, we, we get angry. We, it displeases us. Jonah has no reason that God should send the fish. He, he's disobeyed. He's been, he's been willful. He's gone the wrong way. And, and yet God saves him. And it seems to truly matter to Jonah that he's been saved until he's back on dry land, and then it doesn't change him. It, it doesn't impact and influence his attitude toward those that he doesn't want saved. And I, I think there's a great lesson in that, that when we forget we have received grace, it becomes nearly impossible to be gracious to others especially those that we struggled to love in the first place. I think if you're going to boil this down, Clint, wouldn't you have to say that Jonah is the tour de force example of what happens when we make ourselves the primary determiner of what's good, when we make it about us, right? Fundamentally, when we believe that our way of thinking, that our way of being is right, and we're unwilling to submit to God, who's by definition bigger. But the God who created everything loves everything that God created. And whenever we allow our thinking to be small and we let it, uh, our world begin to revolve around our own small circles, we fail to recognize God's plan, which is bigger than us, which is better than ours, and an invitation that each of us have to participate in something more real and true than the stuff that we take for granted. Yeah, of all the people that you think in the entire world des who deserve it the least, God wants for them a fullness and a joy and a beauty of their life the same as he does for the rest of us. And that is humbling. It is amazing. It is hopefully the kind of thing that we can orient our life by. And we it's interesting. Everything we learn from Jonah, we learn in the negative. Mm -hmm. we, we see in this book, time after time from this man, what we ought not do. And that makes it a very interesting story. And I think the challenge coming out of a story like that is, ironically enough, not to live it. Most of the biblical stories we're called to live into, this one we're called to live away from. Hmm. Yeah, and that 
I think brings us back full circle, right? Uh, regardless of those places where we began and scholars talking about history, Jonah is a real person of faith that we can see in this story what it means to be human and God's invitation to us to live into God's story, which is by definition bigger than what we have been led to believe. And that, that is what it means to be a real person of faith, is someone who lives into God's way and not our own smaller way. Yeah, and Michael, you've said this consistently through the podcast that when we look at these stories, what we really see behind them is the story of God. And the story of God here in Jonah is a God who pursues a man who runs, a God who tries to teach a man who is hard-hearted, a God who provides even in the midst of his ugliness, and a God even to the end of the story who is trying to show Jonah a, a better way, a, the way of his own heart. And Jonah seems unwilling to listen. I, you know, the story is left open-ended. Maybe our hope is that Jonah somehow got it. That seems a stretch. But I think it's a fascinating portrait of the God who not only won't give up on the Ninevites, but won't give up on this single prophet as well. Of course, our abiding hope is that God gives up on no one and none of us. And so we hope that you continue to find these stories of God's people uh, encouraging as you seek to live as a disciple yourself. We would love for you to share these conversations however uh, you would like. If there, you think someone might enjoy uh, being able to tune in and being reminded of God's grace and love for us, we'd love for you to share that wherever you're at. We're grateful that you continue to join us for the conversations. We've had a great group of people continue to tune in weekly, and uh, that is both humbling and great, uh, filled with joy. So thanks for doing that. We look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah, as always, questions, thoughts, comments, uh, email them or post them. We'll see them and we'll do our best to speak to them. But we appreciate you listening. We hope all is well. And thank you for joining us.